This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, November 6, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. For people to reintegrate or remain integrated in society after a prison sentence or a conviction, current probation and parole policies aren't serving the public particularly well, and the research is showing us ways to fix it. Mark Levin is Vice President for Criminal Justice Policy at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. We spoke last week in Colorado Springs. For people who didn't go to jail but were convicted of something, Uh, a lot of them get probation. What does that look like? Well, there's a lot of conditions in most places on um, people on probation uh, in terms of uh, you can't leave the county without permission. You can't drink alcohol. Um, You obviously have to report to a probation officer frequently, uh, drug testing and so forth. And of course, you know, uh, there's a need for some conditions and and need for accountability. But I think in many jurisdictions, uh, we've gone too far with a whole laundry list of dozens of conditions that aren't uh, correlated to the person's offense or their risk factors. And so um, what we found is through the research that actually um, focusing the supervision to narrowly tailor to the individual's um, issues, that that is much more effective than just a laundry list of conditions. And the other thing is people are, many places are on probation for too long, 10, 15, in, in Minnesota, 40 years, some people on probation. And all the data has shown if someone's going to mess up, if they're going to be rearrested, it's typically going to be in the first year or two. So there's little or no public safety benefit to lengthy terms of probation. And then finally, addressing the issues of revocation. Um, Half the people that come into our prisons across the country are people that were revoked from probation or parole. And so what uh, we've basically seen is by implementing positive incentives as well as graduated sanctions, we can reduce that and still uh, uh, protect public safety. It's an incredible number to say that half of people who ultimately report to prison are people who uh, either out of prison, on parole or uh, never reported to prison in the first place. Um, so what are some ways to get those numbers down? You mentioned the, the, some of the, the, these things go on for too long uh, in many cases with no public safety benefit, but uh, is part of solution just not having probation be a potential penalty for a lot of these crimes? Well, yeah, there's 4.5 million people on probation and parole, so it's a really large number. And you're right in the sense that um, uh, there's people that shouldn't even be uh, formally adjudicated, that shouldn't be placed on probation. They could just be fined, right? Um, or they could be put into a diversion program where prior to adjudication. And so uh, we've seen, for example, in Seattle, there's a law enforcement-assisted diversion program where police refer people for drug offenses and prostitution to treatment, counseling, uh, assistance. Uh, social services, job placement. And so per- those people never go on probation. They never get a conviction. So that can help kind of uh, reduce the uh, kind of scope of, of uh, people on probation to begin with who are subject to being revoked to prison. Um, and then again, you know, the terms, how long people are on probation. And of course, the technical violations. I mean, a lot of these technical violations don't necessarily indicate someone's on the verge of committing an offense. And so rather than revoke them, if you just want to get their attention and say, you really need to comply with probation, 
you know, you can have a curfew. You can put them in jail for the weekend, which sends a message that you need to comply. And so you're not going to be doing your fun stuff this weekend, but you're going to keep your job, you know, after the weekend in jail, you're going to go back and, 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 and to that job and to the obligations of taking care of your family and all of that. But when you, when you revoke somebody, especially if they have a relatively stable life, um, you disrupt everything. They lose their job, they lose their housing, and then they, you know, they go to prison in some cases for six months or a year, they come out and they're in a worse uh, place. They're more of a risk than they were when they came in. So that's really why a lot of uh, research has tended to indicate this doesn't benefit public safety. So with respect to parole, these are people who have been to jail uh, and have, if it's like 20% parole eligibility or 80% parole eligibility, these people uh, come out of prison and they are, as you as you indicated, they might be in a worse spot uh, than when they went in. Um, and to the extent these people pose not a particular public safety uh, risk, what does parole look like? Well, similar. And in some places, it's it's all one system. Um, but, um, uh, you know, the, the one of the things to really look at is also the uh, what uh, types of supervision are being provided? In other words, um, what is the culture? What are the practices of probation and parole officers? And so one of the uh, metaphors that's been offered that I think is really helpful is that these probation and parole officers need to be coaches and not umpires. So they're not just calling balls and strikes. They're trying to help the person succeed. You know, there was a sign in a California parole office uh, a decade or two ago that said, trail them, nail them, and jail them. And, you know, now I think the field has started to recognize, well, let's help this guy on parole get a job. Let's help him not be homeless and find a place to live. Let's uh, make sure if he's mentally ill, he was on medications in prison, that he's still getting those medications. Because we obviously know when someone can kind of go uh, immediately, suddenly off their medication, there can be really uh, terrible results. So um, obviously there is an accountability aspect to it, but but I think that we're realizing there's also a aspect of let's help these people succeed, not create a tripwire for failure. And so, um, you know, the, the parole system, um, I think it's, it's important that, that as we look at, you know, uh, releasing people on parole, um, that, uh, that we, that, that basically we realize that if we just discharge people directly from prison, which is about a quarter of people are released directly from prison without parole, because they maxed out their sentence, then there's none of this, um, framework to help them succeed. And, and there's no, you know, in Texas, if someone's approved for parole, they have to have a valid home plan. So if they don't have someone stable to live with, there's a subsidized halfway house while they, you know, get a job and build up their independence. And so, but if they're just, if they're, if they've maxed out, they've served every day of their prison term and they're not paroled. And by the way, there's 16 states that have no parole. So that happens, that's what happens in every case. Then we don't have this opportunity to hopefully have a, uh, an engagement with them that's both uh, one of accountability, but also support. Is there uh, some data on the difference between being released on parole and the kinds of sort of support services you get versus serving your sentence and uh, uh, just being released into the wild in a sense? Yeah, well, you know, the Pew Center did a study uh, several years ago in New Jersey, and they compared comparable people released from prison um, who had similar risk factors, similar offense histories, uh, those that were granted parole versus those that were just maxed out their term in prison. And and what they found is there was a 36% higher new offense rate among those that maxed out. But at the return to prison rate was about the same because you had these technical uh, violations resulting in technical revocations of people on parole. So I think that points to the fact that if we build a more supportive parole system and one where we deal with minor violations, whether it's drinking alcohol or missing an appointment, we deal with 
with those through kind of graduated sanctions uh, rather than saying what you're revoked to prison forever long is left on your term, then we actually would get the best of both worlds. We would get this reduction in new offenses without kind of sending people back at great cost to taxpayers unnecessarily for what's not a new offense. Uh, the overwhelming number of prisoners are at the state level. And uh, so what states are doing a particularly good job of this? You mentioned 16 states that don't have any parole at all, but uh, with respect to probation and parole and uh, trying to help people who are not in prison, uh, who would have otherwise gone to prison, uh, succeed, who's doing a good job? Well, uh, there are a number of examples. Georgia really stands out. Um, uh, the uh, Georgia Supreme Court Justice Michael Boggs really led, along with uh, many uh, legislative leaders and got former Governor Nathan Deal, a whole host of reforms in this area. But one of the things they did with regard to probation was uh, around early termination for people that are exemplary, that proven themselves. And so what they said is instead of the person on probation having to apply for early termination, which is complicated and you know they don't have a lawyer, most of them weren't doing it even if they were eligible, they said the probation agency would um, uh, request to the court that the person be early terminated after they've been exemplary for several years. Um, and since they implemented that about a year ago, basically about uh, nearly 40,000 people have been early terminated. They've saved an average of six years off their term. Um, and there's a study similarly in Missouri about um, earned time and early termination for people on probation. And basically, it showed that uh, these people were no more likely to commit an offense after they were out of probation than if they had been kept on. So it's a benefit for taxpayers and it lets the limited resources of probation focus on people that actually need supervision. So in a lot of places, one probation officer is supervising 110 people on average. That's an average caseload. In Texas, we have 75 uh, people supervised by one parole officer. So that's a lot of people. And so if you can take people off the caseload that don't really need to be there, I mean, from a conservative perspective, if you think about it, why would we compare it to welfare? We want people to graduate from welfare and not be on it. And we want to, before any type of social service, or in this case, community supervision, have just the people that need it and do a good job with them instead of having to hire more people for the government to supervise or provide a service to people that don't really need it. So you mentioned being a conservative, uh, and for conservatives, uh, money talks. Uh, so when we're talking about what kind of savings states could expect from these kinds of reforms, is there any data on that? Well, certainly, uh, we know prison is how expensive it is. So, you know, $60 a day per person. Um, and so, as we said, half the people going into prison are people revoked from probation and parole, and about 40% of those are technical revocations uh, where there wasn't a new crime alleged. So, I mean, we're talking about hundreds of millions or potentially billions of dollars nationally if we could um, uh really improve the success rates in probation and parole and, and cut down the revocation rates. So, And then we're not talking about all the benefits. In other words, if somebody's employed, they're paying taxes, they're contributing to the economy. Um, if somebody's a primary breadwinner for their children, then their children aren't in foster care or a state institution. So you know, it, it's really hard to to put a um, number on kind of the total benefits, but um, we've seen in particular that um, there's a growing interest among employers in hiring people who are formerly incarcerated. J.P. Morgan Chase just made a na major announcement on this. Coke Industries is one of the first to to really start uh, an initiative to hire people with a criminal record. So the whole idea that you could have people be um, taxpayers and not tax burdens is very appealing. 
Mark Levin is Vice President for Criminal Justice Policy at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. We spoke last week in Colorado Springs. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.